You're listening to the Author Stories Podcast. Bringing you the story behind the stories and the storytellers. Margaret Wyatt, Terry Brooks, Sheena Kamal, Matthew Quick, JT Ellison, Walt D. Williams, Brad Ford, Corey, Dr. O, Brandon Robin Mock, Ernest Klein, Jim Butcher, Sherwin Harris. Visit HankGarner.com for archives of all the shows. Today's guest is... Well, thanks for joining me again for the Author Stories Podcast, where I bring you the story behind the stories and the storytellers. Today, I'm really excited to have Jerome Preisler on the show today. He uh, has written uh, the the newest entry in Tom Clancy's Net4 series, Attack Protocol. And I'll tell you what, uh, Jerome, since you relaunched the NetForce series, uh, was it a year ago, I think? Um, this is some of the best stuff coming uh, out of the franchise at the moment. Uh, welcome to the show. Wow, thanks a lot. My pleasure to be here. Uh, Jerome, we begin each show uh, with the same question. And that question is, what is your first memory of wanting to be a writer or storyteller? Well, um, I started writing um, when I was about nine or 10. And it's not, it wasn't a, a conscious thought about being, wanting to be a writer. Uh, that really didn't occur to me till years and years later. But I started um, working on a novel. Uh, and uh, I started handwriting it on loose leaf paper. Uh, again, I was probably 10 or 11. Um, and then at some point within the first few months, uh, I started typing it. There was an old Royal typewriter in, uh, in the room that I shared with my brother. And, uh, I believe it belonged to my mother, but uh, to this day, I'm, I'm not sure. So I started typing and somehow or other, I, I typed, Correctly, I wasn't finger pecking. I one finger pecking. I was actually typing away with my fingers where they were supposed to be, and that novel grew into um, about 140 page, pages, uh, single spaced, no margins because I knew nothing about margins. In fact, I was using <laughs> both. I used both sides of the paper, and when somebody yelled, I would. This kind of dates it, but um, and dates me, but. Um, I would shift the ink so that I would have the, you used to have the double bands of typing, typewriter ribbon, right. uh, black and red. I would shift the red. So when people were yelling, it would be red. <laughs> no italics. <laughs> That's fantastic. Yeah. And that was really, that, that was the, that was the first that was the thing I did. That's and it amazing. Was almost, yeah. And it was almost automatic writing. I, I don't remember the act of writing it. I am, I of course remember the story and, being immersed in it, but the actual um, sitting there and typing for all those hours, I have no recollection of it. Wow. Do you, do you ever kind of find yourself in that state now, um, or, or are you always uh, striving to get back to that place? Mostly striving. Uh, the closest, <laughs> yeah, desperately. The cl yeah. It's nice that we're talking about attack protocol because the closest I've come to that in all these years was the writing of attack protocol. Wow. That that's amazing. Um, it, Jerome, you, uh, you've written several entries, uh, in the, uh, in the Tom Clancy world. Um, how did you get, get plugged into, uh, to, to his, uh, world that he had created? And, uh, what was your entry there? 
Well, it it started back. Geez, um, it started back in the mid nineties. Um, there was a nonfiction series that uh, that was coming out uh, under his imprint. It was each book in the series was titled um, named after a different branch of the service. I remember those. Um, yeah, and, and there was one called Airborne, and uh, there was some issues getting it out. So I was asked to write certain sections of it, and I'm, I'm thanked in the in the credits, but I'm not credited to the writers. Um, I'm, uh, and, uh, I did, I did a few things in that. And then, um, a few months later, a guy who should be a household name for people who, who love to read, um, his name was Marty Greenberg or Martin H. Greenberg, who passed away a few number of years ago. He was, he was working with Tom on, um, some of these co-created series, which were just being launched then. And and uh, Marty was also involved in that particular nonfiction series. He gave me a call out of the blue one day and said, Jerome, um, do you want to write um, the Power Play series? And I was, well, yeah, great. And he said, um, uh, you know, Tom's, Tom's uh, co-created it. We, we can send you a series Bible. Uh, you can confirm then. Yeah, okay. And um, then I find out that I think he called me up in, something like, let's say, August, and the book was due in October. <laughs> and, and of course, Mar and, and, and I, I can clearly remember uh, Marty telling me the, the huge investment in this book and um, the publisher was making, and, and he said, you know, there's going to be a lot on your shoulders, Jerome. And I thought, yeah, right, you know, two months worth of, uh, of uh, sweat. But we got it done, and um, I wrote, um, all, uh, I think there were eight books in that series and that was really how it all started. So Jerome, how do, how does one get to the place, uh, where, uh, you get called upon to, uh, to rescue or maybe not rescue, but to, to fill in some holes, uh, in, in a, uh, a book that's in the Tom Clancy franchise and in the beginning, and then, you know, get to go on to, to write the power play series. But uh, how how do you get to the point where you're called in to to kind of help patch things up? That's a great question. In, in my case, what happened was I had been doing um, I'd done a number of books uh, for uh, Tom's publisher, which was Putnam uh, Putnam Berkeley at, at the time, and um, so a couple of the editors had gotten to know me and uh, like my work. So when they were in a in a pinch, uh, they asked me. The, the The reason I say it's such a good question is I don't know how easily or how likely it would be for something like that to happen nowadays, because the stuff that I was writing at the time would be uh, was weren't you know were, were were your paperback originals. They weren't your a you know a list books. And nowadays, with mid list books being cut, uh, the entire mid list disappearing. It's, you know, it's, it would be really hard for there even to be a writer in that position at that point. So I, so I don't know, um, I don't know if it could happen nowadays and, and if it, and that, that would, that would be really sad. But in, in my case, um, that was a position I was in. So the power play series, I, I remember the series and, and, uh, as, as a lover of, the, the Clancy world. Um, this was 
you know, an, an obvious choice. But uh, for for the listeners who may not be familiar, what was the what was the setup for that series, and what what corner of the world did uh, did Power Plays fill? Uh, the the concept behind it was that there was a um, uh, extremely wealthy businessman who was in communications, and uh, he had these ground stations all over the world. Uh, I initially he he needed um, he needed an armed force to kind of protect these bases because uh, essentially that's what the, how it was structured. There was there were these quasi. I don't want to say military bases, but but anyway, there were a lot of there was a lot of uh, classified stuff going on there. So he needed a force. He had his own um, his own security force, and the idea would be that he would then get involved in uh, all sorts of different uh, international uh, crises uh, and sort of. And <laughs> it was a difficult it was a difficult concept to work with. Because, um, obviously, let's just say he had, in one of the stories, he had a ground station in Brazil and they get attacked or something happens in Brazil. Well, obviously, there are a whole slew of international laws that might ordinarily preclude his group from getting involved and uh, or at least place certain restrictions on them. So one initial restriction that we came up with was that he would use uh, non-lethal or more correctly, less than lethal weapons. Um, and that kind of, as, as, as the series went on, that faded a bit, um, because I just found it difficult to use, to have the good guys using n- less than le- lethal weapons against bad guys who are coming to wipe them out. It doesn't work that way. If in reality, if, 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 if there's a conflict like, like that, the people who are using less than, than lethals are going to be at the, um, the the bad end of that. So anyway, that was the concept. And um, it developed and, and, and morphed a bit as, as we went along, but uh, started out being, being that. The, uh, you have written um, a, a number of books in, in the Tom Clancy universe. Uh, also written uh, some narrative nonfiction and historical works, as well as other novels. Um, but Jerome, how does how does writing um, cutting edge fiction like you're doing here, uh, and also writing narrative nonfiction historical works? Um, one thing that I that I've noticed about your um, your historical work is that. Um, you really have a a penchant for bringing out characters and uh, what's interesting about them and and their plight. Um, and you know we can we've all read history that's you know just wrote facts over and uh, you know and until you're just mind numb. And and the same kind of thing in in a lot of technical uh, present day fiction. You know you you can do the same thing. You can overwhelm people with facts. And, and unless there's a character tied to it that this impacts, we don't really care about it. Um, wh- what are what are your thoughts about uh, about creating characters and making them uh, making the readers care about them and care about the journey that they're going on? Well, uh, my characters, um, are, they kind of evolve very organically. Uh, I am. I, I think that's my strength. One of my 
main strengths as a writer. Uh, I'm good. I'm, I'm, I'm good at characters and I'm also know I'm good at dialogue. Um, so that's how I approach everything. I look at, um, everything I write is character driven, whether it's fiction or nonfiction. And, um, I like series because you can, you can really move a character along over a period of years and really have changes and growth. Um, and, and these things, I don't plan it out. Um, I may have a general idea where a character is going, but they kind of dictate to me um, what happens to them. As in terms of the kind of comparison between um, writing writing nonfiction and fiction, writing the Clancy t- type stuff, and um, and a narrative history, um, the techniques I use are pretty close to identical. Uh, the under the, the kind of linchpins that you have if you're writing, and we'll use we'll use the Clancy books since we're talking about them as an example. Um, with the Clancy book, you you have two. Uh, there are two key things you need to you need to nail, and one is that you need a um, you need to really be factually accurate. You need to your your research has to be meticulous. The other thing is that uh, you want to tell a really um, entertaining crackling story that's exactly what i want to do with history um and and so in a way i i think the first of my narrative history was written after i'd written a number of clancy books and they were good preparation for me in terms of developing research techniques i apply all those techniques and and refine them in in doing the nonfiction, uh and and all of the the, the nonfiction I do is narrative nonfiction, which is telling the story. I try to do it boots on the ground um, so that so that the reader really experiences it um, as if they're reading a, no, a, a really good novel. And I and the key difference would be, you know, if you're if you're writing if you're writing history, you obviously can't uh, figure out a way for your hero to get out of a fix uh, when he's in serious trouble. He either did get out of it or he didn't. If he didn't, well, you know, he's, nothing you can do. It's history. In in in, um, in fiction, obviously, you you can you can make stuff up. So in that way, I guess it makes it a little bit easier. But but um, short version of the answer is that that um, working on one or the other, I, I take very much the same approach. I, I remember when um, the original NetForce series came out. Um, it, it would have been in, in the 90s. I don't remember the exact uh, year. Um, that original series created by uh, Tom Clancy and Steve Pachinik, if I uh, remember right. Um, there were some concepts in those books uh, that that were very forward thinking. Um, but if you look back on them today, they didn't necessarily age well. Um, right. And, you know, like uh, like some of the I, I remember it was maybe even the first book, uh, some of the avatars and, and how mm-hmm. they would be cars, you know, on a on a literal, uh, you know, highway in, in a virtual world. And um, and when you when you started in the virtual world, I think you had a Dodge Neon, um, if I'm remembering <laughs> right. You know, yeah. There's some concepts that just didn't age well, but it was very forward thinking at the time. Um, when you're when you're reapproaching the Net Four series and looking at um, number one, technology has has permeated our lives. 
um, since that time and, and has become even more integrated into what we do. And the, the average reader is is maybe a little more savvy um, just because of the permeates of, of just, just how it's everywhere. Um, how do you start thinking of forward-looking technologies while a trying with a conscience? Um, Ian Bragg not, is paid to kill you know, people. Have yourself Only bad people, a not decades, minutes. But for a great, a great deal of question. money. And, you know, of Case you the target. Know that's gonna Make the hit, exactly. Only, Move on. Yeah, you can Until he meets the woman with sparkling uh, green eyes who changes everything. But a few pre-readers had this to say um, about Ian Bragg. I'm Mark Dawson, million-selling thriller author, says a rip-roaring ride from start to breathless finish. Craig Martell um, hit a home run with the, the operators. My the taut, case, lean prose and lightning fast pace make this a page turner uh, without sacrificing an ounce of story or depth. You'll find yourself uh, rooting for the hitman main character well, wrote, as he course, faces the uh, toughest you know, decision of his career. Of the operator um, is the start we, of a new thriller series I expect to see burning up bestseller lists for years to come, says A.C. Fuller, author of the Crime Beat and Alex Vane media thrillers. Suave, romantic, and lethal, Ian Bragg is everything you want in a highly paid assassin. Can't wait to ride this train, says James Blatch, self-publishing formula. It's been a long time since I fell this hard in love with a book, a very long time. Author of Women of Wine County, Romantic Suspense, Terry Wells Brown says. Grab this book from Craig Martell, The Operator. My thinking, the way what I'm feeling at the time. And of course, I have Farrell's to then kind of look back on well, no, Successful indie author James P. Sumner. To he has self-published over 15 titles um, in the last five years and has over 800,000 downloads so far in his career, about meaning he has a wealth of knowledge and experience to share with the, the indie publishing community. Knowing the struggles of the modern-day indie author as well as he does, he wanted to create a platform that would allow writers of any level to and learn the ropes, navigate the pitfalls, the and produce a professional because, novel without uh, wasting time with or money in the process. Both Barrels Publishing is the perfect one-stop shop for any indie author, combining James's expertise with his own team of editors and designers so you can help your novel realize its full potential and learn how to publish yourself. The purpose of Both Barrels Publishing is to help indie authors get their novels ready for publication without all the stress, hassle, and unnecessary expense. We want to make your lives easier, which is why we're giving you access to a top-notch team to publish your novels, along with a generous discount on their services. You can also work one-on-one with James to learn the intricacies of self-publishing. No hidden costs, no false promises. We simply want you to publish the best version of your novel. BothBarrelsPublishing.com aspect of it, which is, you know, we want to be as cutting-edge as possible and they were cutting edge, but it has to be from a modern perspective. So that's what I did. I, I, I can play, I, I, I like to play with expectations a bit. So I have a couple of the characters that were in the original series who do transfer into the new series, but they're completely different. You know, the very nice, pleasant guys kind of, kind of, uh, you know, rather, rather unpleasant. And uh, they're, they're really updated versions of it. And again, uh, people people get that. They've seen, you know, five different versions of Commissioner Gordon and Batman. But as far as the technology, what you have to really do is just, um, you know, you just have to really do your research and kind of look ahead. Look, it's, if, if there's something going on now, you have to try to research 
uh, what you have to look at the projections and look at what the the likelihood, what the likely evolution of it's going to be in the next five or or ten years. And there's no there's no formula. There's no guarantee you're going to be right, but you do your best. Imagine all these science fiction writers, you know, that, oh, yeah, you know, same thing. Absolutely. Um, so living in the 21st century, the the um, the idea that we would fight another war um, like World War Two is a uh, is kind of a, a slim possibility at this point. Um, and we I think we all concede the fact uh, that a lot of warfare now takes place in the digital realm uh, or, uh, you know, th- there are ways that that wars may be waged every day um, on a technological front that that we aren't aware of. What's the big idea behind NetForce? Um, is it that there's a team of people that are um, ready, uh, that are digital warriors in, in a sense? Uh, is that kind of the big idea behind NetForce? Uh, that's part of it. I, um, when I, when I reimagined that force, I, I thought of a number of things. First of all, um, I, I thought it, it, it gets kind of boring if it's a bunch of people who are sitting typing at a, at computer keyboards, um, or even, you know, using, uh, Alexa, Alexa, <laughs> they can't <laughs> just be sitting there doing that stuff. So the whole, uh, so, so for me, and, and actually part of the original series was that there were different, there was a military uh, as arm to net force. There, were, there was a cyber uh, arm to it. So that really is the same. But what I, what I did was I made it um, a, a, a homeland security type branch. It was a cabinet level branch of the government. Whereas I think before in the original series, it was part of the FBI, if I'm not mistaken. Another thing that was important to me was that uh, because we're when we're dealing with cyberspace um, and we're kind of going beyond almost by definition there um, national boundaries. I wanted my group of heroes to be representative of the world of, of global society. So I, I very consciously populated with heroes from, of different nationalities, different, uh, ethnicities, uh, different faiths, um, even in, even different sexual, sexual orientations. I wanted to have my heroes represent modern society. And, uh, I think that's a real that that's a real key aspect of this series and and it's um it plays out really well because i i, I think it allows me to really um to open up the perspective of net force so even though yeah it's it's an american uh base group uh and again it's it's a it's it's on par with homeland security um, my heroes are a rather interesting bunch of of people, and um, there's a group that really focuses on uh, the cyber uh, cyberspace elements of it. There, there, there's a group that focuses on the um, 
the military or special ops um, aspect of of the story. Uh, and um, then there's uh, an investigative group. And um, so I have a really broad range. I can focus on certain characters in some stories, other other characters in in a different book or a different novella because we're doing e-novellas between the books. And um, yeah, that's how that's how I approach it. When you start thinking of a new uh, NetForce book, what what's the uh, what's the first idea that comes to you? Is it is it uh, a a particular technology? Is it a uh, a geopolitical situation that you envision? Is it uh, is it one of your characters and 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 what they might be getting up to? Where does that that story idea begin? My first thought was uh, was again it was a character, and it was um, one of the central characters is named Kali Alcazar. Uh, the name, the character came to me uh, whole. And she was a, uh, is a black hat hacker, or really, uh, no, let me correct that. She's a gray hat hacker, which is someone who uh, hacks according to her own moral code. And that moral code may or may not uh, sync up with um, international law but she's coming from a place of real moral strength and we find out a lot about ali and her background um as as the series goes on um so i i decided that when we open the story Kali's not part of any group Kali is uh, hacking into a corrupt bank that was the first image i had and um from there, I just started to think, well, you know, where, how do we pull Kali into NetForce? Who are the people that do that? Where is Kali when, when this happens? Um, what's been happening with her before that? And so the next thing that came into my mind was, okay, she's being pursued by somebody, by some Americans who capture her. And that's where she first starts working with America. And Americans. Well, who are these Americans? So I came up with a CIA uh, hunt, hunter team, hunter tracker team, and they'd been pursuing her be, just be, when when uh, NetForce Dark Web, the first book, opens. Um, they've caught up to her, and um, they've been after her for months. And uh, I start thinking about who those characters are, and. Because it's an origin story, NetForce does not exist beginning of book one. So all people become part of Network, Network, NetForce, <laughs> Network. <laughs> but um, they become part of NetForce by the end of book one and then into, into book two. So the story kind of, you know, the origin story is kind of spills over even a little bit in book two. But that's really where it started out. And then kind of imagining as, you know, who, what are the, what roles will these characters have? What other characters will I need? And you start, it's just building blocks. You start building around them, but really uh, front and center uh, in, in the series is, um, is this um, character Kali and the CIA guy, uh, Mike Carmody, who, who leads the tracks her down. 
Uh, Jerome, you you mentioned earlier the the idea of uh, of masks and the the pandemic and and what we're dealing with in the world right now and what would that look like uh, in your fiction uh, going forward? You know what would what would the reality of the world look like in a couple of years? Because these books are a, a couple to a few years in the future. Um, besides the masks and, and the the pandemic, what are what are some of the pieces of technology that you've gotten to play with and and uh sort of uh envision what it what what path it might take well uh i've i in attack protocol uh i really had a lot of fun playing with the idea of um ai uh especially in in uh, robots and uh um drones drone swarms um you know of course the you know the most um the most obvious things are like our uh, cyberspace uh, virtual realities plays into the series. Um, sort of this, you know, um, mobile VR, uh, the, the evolution of um, rather than have virtual reality spaces within even, say, earlier on, when I first conceived the series, I thought of uh, something called the Hive, which was a physical place where um, some of my characters would put on virtual reality headsets and it was really, um, and then they would have, you know, kind of uh, different virtual reality experiences that allowed them to analyze certain things. That grew into um, the hive being, uh, having no physical space so that people, people, you know, plug into the hive using, um, using, using these, um, headsets that, that, you know, obviously are Wi-Fi connected, so you don't have to have a computer and they're completely mobile. Um, that's almost, uh, that's the easy thing, but I thought what I, what I've really had a lot of fun with, as I mentioned, was, um, kind of, uh, looking at AI within robots. And, um, in the case of this story, it was a uh, century of military robots and, uh, look, and then kind of extrapolating, thinking about, okay, what happens when People start messing with that AI, and what are the safeguards that um, that need to be in place if we're going to have those sorts of uh, contraptions uh, running around? And what happens if uh, there are holes in the safeguard uh, in those safeguards? Uh, the other thing that, of course, really plays into the whole series is the Internet of Things. Everything is plugged in, right. so and most things nowadays and really as far as i can see into the future really don't have adequate uh, protection adequate firewalls um so you know you can start looking at cyber attacks in terms of how how does how does a computer bug spread you know and nowadays you know it can spread from your smart refrigerator to your smart pen to your you know to everything um, so, uh, in, in book one, in, in, um, dark web, I actually thought about that cause that's really what happened. And, um, I did a lot of research into how, um, a biological, um, epidemic ironically would spread, um, throughout throughout civilizations and i looked back i read a lot of stuff about how you know polio and tuberculosis and 
all of those disease, black plague. Um, and I looked at uh, roots of contagion and I then um, transferred that into um, technology and started looking at, okay, what are the parallels? Um, and the parallels were uh, tremendous. I mean, they were, they, they were really evident and, and um, they, they were, they were all over the place. So I, so I then really imagined, well, okay, now I've got this bug, how's it going to spread? And I use these, these models of, of, of how um, uh, biological epidemics had spread to kind of model out how my, my, um, my fictional, um, you know, um, computer bug would spread. And, and again, I use the internet of things because that to me is, and that to, to the, um, that's, that's scary to me. And it's actually scary to all these computer experts out there. You know, I, to the to people in the FBI, I spoke to people who were designing uh, different sorts of firewall software. And the number one uh, thing that they all worry about is near field technology. You know, and for people who aren't really acquainted with the term, it's just, you know, when you go to Starbucks and you swipe your, your phone to, um, you know, you move your, hold your phone against the uh, scanner. Um, there, there are a lot of vulnerabilities in that technology. And yet that's, becoming more and more prevalent. Nobody's using cards. Nobody's using cash. Uh, and uh, so so that was, um, that's something I've, I've thought about a lot and used in the series. Well, as, as always, a NetForce book is a great way to think about uh, the issues that we're dealing with today and, and couch them in uh, visions of the future. And, uh, and it, what a great... Um, a, a great way to do that. The new book is called NetForce Attack Protocol. When you're hearing this, it's on sale everywhere, and you can grab your uh, e- either hardcover or uh, Kindle edition or audiobook, however you love to read those. We're going to put links to it in the show notes of this episode. Uh, Jerome, if people are just learning about you and all of the fantastic stuff that you're involved with, is there a place where they can connect with you online? Well, I have uh, I have a Facebook page. You can always connect with me there. I also have my website, JeromePreisler.com, and uh, anybody can email me there. I, I love hearing from people. I love to get back to readers. Excellent. We're going to send everyone to see you. Uh, NetForce Attack Protocol be today. Jerome, thank you so much for taking time to come on the show. Thank you. It was a pleasure. On an isolated human planet called Phoenix, outside the Galactic Gate Network, a royal empire teeters on the brink of revolution. The new emperor is weak, the old guard seeks power, and a hidden slave cabal manipulates the great and small houses alike. None of this concerns Simeon Brazhnev, newly appointed steward to one of the most powerful heiresses on the planet. Happy to let the royals play their age-old game of catch the crown, Simeon is more concerned with balancing his mistress's books than worrying about affairs of state. But when Simeon discovers evidence of sedition at the highest levels of government buried deep within her finances, he realizes her great peril. Though a slave, he finds himself trapped in political intrigue, desperate to protect his mistress from the royals who would see her dead and the slave rebels who would make her their pawn. Agonized by the choice of turning her over to the authorities or protecting her secrets, Simeon decides to keep faith with his sovereign over his larger duty, thus flinging himself into a world of power, plot, and assassination. If he fails, they both die, and with them the chance at freedom for Simeon's enslaved race. 
Set in the Salvage title universe, Salvage Mind is the first of three novels in a new breakout series. Available in ebook format and paperback, grab your copy today. Salvage Mind by David Allen Jones. Bone Thief, John Driscoll, Book One by Thomas O'Callaghan. A sociopathic killer is using the internet to lure seemingly random women to their gruesome deaths in New York City. During his heinous murder spree, this madman is extracting the bones of his victims. His sheer brutality has the residents of the Big Apple in panic mode. Who is this twisted psycho who's abducted a housewife in broad daylight only to dispose of her lifeless body alongside a lake in Prospect Park, nailed the boneless remains of a nameless drifter to the underside of a boardwalk at Rockaway Beach, allowed the gutted corpse of a single parent to wash ashore under the Brooklyn Bridge, and has had the audacity to leave the desecrated body of the Magnolia Tea heiress rotting atop trash at one of the city's sanitation dumps. NYPD's top cop, Homicide Commander John W. Driscoll, has never witnessed such savagery. Hammered daily by the district attorney, the mayor, and the police commissioner, the lieutenant, who's battling his own inner demons, must use every resource available to put an end to the killings. In a race against time, Driscoll, aided by Sergeant Alagante and Detective Cedric Tomlinson, sets out on a roller coaster of an investigation to first identify the villainous fiend and then put an end to his butchering. Grab Bone Thief by Thomas O'Callaghan now.